Hi, welcome to the Art and Science of Learning, the podcast that digs deeper in how we learn, so that in today's accelerated world, we can learn better and enjoy it more. I'm your host, learning specialist, Dr. Kinga Petrovai. Every week, I discuss aspects of learning with academics, practitioners, and individuals with unique learning journeys to inform and inspire how you design learning into work and life. Intelligence is an area that we don't truly understand. Only recently have we even started to understand and acknowledge the different strengths of neurodiversity, and we are still learning about the many forms of intelligence in other animals and living organisms. So is it optimal to base artificial intelligence on a narrow definition of human intelligence, or is there a lot more for us to learn? In her beautifully written book, A Human Algorithm, Flynn Coleman highlights the many forms of intelligence that exist in other living organisms and groups, and the need for us to better understand what exactly we mean by intelligence. Flynn Coleman is a writer, international human rights attorney, a fellow at Harvard and Yale, a public speaker and social innovator. She has worked with the United Nations, the United States federal government, and international corporations and human rights organizations around the world. She has written extensively on issues of global citizenship, the future of work and purpose, political reconciliation, war crimes, genocide, human and civil rights, humanitarian issues, innovation and design for social impact, and improving access to justice and education. Thank you so much, Flynn, for joining me on the podcast. Oh, the pleasure is all mine. I'm so happy to be here. Well, I'm absolutely thrilled to be talking to you about this fantastic book that you wrote, which I I loved it. And it was very, very easy to read, but extremely complex in the way you bring together so many different aspects of what AI is and issues that impact AI from ethics to bias to rights, human rights, robot rights. Um, It's a fantastic, all-encompassing book. But before we really delve in, and we're going to be focusing on the intelligence aspect of, of the book, but first, can you give a little bit of an overview? Where are we at with AI? Indeed, and thank you so much. I'm honored that you love the book. That really means a lot. Where are we at with AI? So the term has been used for many, many years and is, of course, become very much a hot button topic. But the truth is is that AI, artificial intelligence, is is no one thing. And part of what I wanted to do with the book, in addition to bringing that more human side of things, is to kind of expand our horizons as to what AI means. So artificial intelligence is, is, is one term. I do think eventually that will be an outdated term. And we might use something more like augmented intelligence, virtual intelligence. It is a multitude of different things, essentially discussing this idea of building robotics, software, and computers that have the capacity to think for themselves. So that's kind of the key differential when we're talking about AI versus other technology. And in terms of where we are today, we've made great strides. So when Alan Turing was talking about this idea of thinking machines, and even before that, this was all very theoretical because we didn't have the machinery, the software, the actual tools to bring this to life. And now we do. So on the one hand, AI is everywhere. When you're talking to Siri, Google, Netflix are all using algorithms that have the ability to improve and to learn ostensibly on their own. That being said, and I myself am a huge fan of science fiction and dystopian fiction and all these different ways that we think about, you know, computers, robot armies, we are, we are very far away from having any semblance of an actual what's called general artificial intelligence that is actually smarter than a human is in all ways. So we are very far away from that. If not, we will never get there at all. And there is a range of different ideas from different experts across the globe as to where we are and where we're heading. And there's a lot of different ways that people are even thinking about building these artificially intelligent tools. So in a sense, we're at an exciting place because there are so many developments across medicine, across aviation, across science in terms of building these so-called intelligent tools. At the same time, we are very far away from having a full understanding of what that actually means. AI is really kind of good right now with 
a growing list of mundane tasks and like discrete activities as opposed to this more generalized form that you might see in some sci-fi. So for me, it's an interesting technological question, but of course, as a human rights lawyer, for me, it's also a question of justice and rights and also a philosophical question. Part of why I think it's so important to talk about this is that First of all, we should all have a voice in the future that's being built for all of us, because like it or not, AI is a part of that. And also it's a real existential question. There's something about building something smarter than humans are or could ever be that has us, you know, it forces us to face a lot of things. So that's a little bit of the state of play in the moment. <laughs> Absolutely. It's a definitely a, a very contested issue, isn't it, of where we're at and what exactly is AI. It's also often misused term for it's one thing to have an algorithm. It's another thing to have a machine that is learning and transforming into what it's learning. So we don't really know where it's going. And that's the really interesting part about AI that if anything is learning, we don't really know what it will learn and where it will go. So it is a very, very interesting topic and very different from any other machine that that has ever been built, which is what makes it scary and also exciting at the same time as your book really nicely lays out at some points. I think, oh my gosh, where are we going? But uh, but it is a very hopeful book as well. You, you come to this from a very multidisciplinary background. You're a human rights lawyer. What prompted you to really delve into this topic? Yes. Yeah, so I have been working at the intersection of technology and human rights and justice for many, many years. I, many, many years ago, was on an early team that was looking at how we could use technology for humanitarian use, uh, for use in war crimes and genocide, which is crimes against humanity, which is my background in the work. And that meant at the time we were, we were looking at satellite imagery to find evidence of burnt out villages, mass graves, evidence of war crimes. And so even when we were trained in the software and were able to get access to the satellites and really start figuring all of these things out, negotiate with the Russians to get access and it wasn't a cloudy day, even when we could see from space what was happening on the ground, uh, this incredible achievement, you know, we were still only seeing what happened after everyone was dead and gone. And I remember thinking, you know, this is, it's so incredibly essential to have a record of what's happened. That's a big part of, of the work that, I, that I've done in the field, but that we were still too late. And I could see the colliding trajectory of technology uh, with rights, with humanity, with society. And so of course that's only grown and accelerated. And I got asked eventually to start, you know, teaching and speaking and writing about, about these issues. And, you know, to make a very long story short, essentially when we're talking about technology now, we have to be talking about AI. Mm -hmm. So down that algorithm, the rabbit hole, I went and started thinking about the intersection of all these issues, the state of play, because social justice advocates, human rights, you know, we've been talking about these things for many years, but we're now colliding with technology, with big tech, with government regulation, with all these issues. And so I knew that we had to tackle this. And I, again, you know, believe that we all should have a voice in the future that we're building. So a big part of that also is that there's so many siloed circles in which we're not, we're, we're ships passing in the night. And you saw that in the 2018 Facebook hearings where the senators and the people in technology companies were not speaking the same language. And so it was bring that, that human lens and to really kind of connect all these different disciplines. And for me, I always say, you know, I, I want you to have an adventure and to have fun when you're reading the book. And of course, I delve into everything from sci-fi and fantasy and Frankenstein and Ada Lovelace. But I also want people to walk away feeling inspired, empowered that they do have a voice to bring this to their teams, to their institutions, to their educational organizations, because we all should have a voice. And anyone that's told you that, you know, just trust us, we're building the future, you couldn't possibly understand, that's a huge red flag. Mm -hmm. So that is that is part of what I wanted to do and just bring my, my voice to the conversation in that way. Mm, absolutely. So important. I mean, it, it's extremely important to have all voices represented in so many issues that we deal with. But with AI in particular, I mean, as a child that is growing up and learning, if they're not exposed to a lot of different experiences and a lot of different types of people, they can't really learn in the same way. And the same way with AI, I, unless we having our voices heard, then the outcome of what the AI will do will probably ignore an entire group of people or an entire uh, aspect of our, our life unless we really build it into it as well. So it's very, very important that everyone's voice is heard. And of course, the issues are numerous, but let's just focus on the intelligence aspect. There's a lot we could be discussing from what you wrote, but let's focus in on intelligence. So at first glance, when we think about 
intelligence, we think we understand what the word means. But as soon as we start thinking about it a little bit more, it's clear that there is no actual definition for what is intelligence. What is the closest definition that you have come to? Yes, a fabulous array of so much to unpack, an array of questions in that question. And I think this has so much to do with learning, with education, with the future of education, you know, and there's so much to say. I mean, inevitably, you know, it's such great joy to speak to groups of people all around the world about this, but inevitably it's the students that have the toughest questions. And so I love working with students because the truth is for me, they're leading the way mm-hmm. and they are the future leaders we are going to be leaving our world to. And so this idea of intelligence to me is an incredibly important part of this, because as you said, and as I delineate in the book, turns out <laughs> there is no one standard definition, same with, you know, same with a lot of what we're talking about in this yes. field. And not only are we talking about, you know, multitude of different definitions, to me, that expands to what types of intelligence we value. And so thinking about this idea of what it means to be intelligent, inevitably we're, we're narrowed by these societal constructs because we're not even really just talking about the definition of intelligence. We're talking about a very narrow set of intellectual parameters based on the certain educational systems we have right now or the testing systems we have. And there's so much cultural diversity there. There's so much neurodiversity to celebrate within the human mind. There's emotional intelligence. There's all those things. Of course, this is you know a hot, hotly debated topic across education is what are schools for? What are we there to teach students? What are students there to learn in this deeply complex and uncertain world? And we have, you know, so many people have talked about this in different ways. We have Sir Ken Robinson who talked about, you know, the loss of creativity in schools and and what's valued. And this varies across cultures. There's ideas of innovation versus conformity, doing well on tests versus being a good human being, being a student of the world. So I talk about definitions of intelligence when we're talking about the intellectual cerebral you know, side of things, of being able to solve those problems and think through things. But there's so much about emotional intelligence. And then, of course, another big plot twist of the book is that I take it you know, beyond human intelligence to think about the prismatic diversity of the intelligence in the world all around us. And so when I, you know, when I bring up my friend, Billy, the octopus from the Seattle Aquarium, what we're talking about is an octopus having a lot, two thirds of their neurons outside of their central brain system. And there's a lot of analogies about this. We're talking about the incredible things that crows can do and pigeons. And also another thing about intelligence that I talk about a lot and think is very relevant to the future of education in the world is this idea of swarm and hive intelligence, the intelligence of the group. When we're talking about what bees and ants can do as colonies, it's extraordinary. And to me, there's analogies there for collaboration, for teamwork. As a lifelong and former competitive athlete, there's the intelligence of the group working together. And so for me, we need to be broadening those horizons, seeing the incredible world around us and tapping into that. And so, you know, I think that the future of group intelligence is incredibly important because there's a converse side to that too. Groupthink is a perfect example of what happens. We can have incredible ideas come from the crowd, but we can also have you know, a mob mentality or group mentality coming from, from the crowd. And I think education is, you know, the most important thing is, is training the tiny humans that will be the future leader of the future societies. And I would love to see a world where more intelligence is not just studied, but celebrated and accepted. And it's a very complex topic, but I do think we need to be expanding those horizons of intelligence, which in turn expands what's possible, not just for the human mind, but for you know the world that we all share. Mm, absolutely. You gave a really fantastic overview of that. It seems like we're just scratching the surface. As you said, in education, there's always been a debate. What are schools for? Why are we educating uh, young people? And th- that has never been, you know, that, that the pendulum swings on that all the time, but also about appreciating neurodiversity, appreciating different ways of learning. These are extremely new topics that have have even come to the fore of our discussions. So to even expand that further to animals and other forms, I mean, we have so much to learn before we can actually define what is intelligence in an AI, AI machine. So let's unpick that a little bit. 
Uh, you talked about the octopus, and I love that story. Can you give a few examples, just so people can imagine, if if you haven't thought about the different forms of intelligence, tell us a little bit about what you've discovered in your research. Yeah, exactly. So if we're talking about this idea of intelligence as being able to garner, receive, and apply information and knowledge and skills and experience, you know, in the broadest, you know, span of what we're thinking about, you know, then we really have narrowed it so far uh, beyond not only what is right and just and ethical and equitable, but what we're going to need to build the cities and institutions and societies of the future. So, you know, when we talk about, and and this is something I know you and I have discussed and that (laughs) is a great topic of conversation for a multitude of different reasons, but this idea of slime molds, which doesn't even have a brain at all in the traditional sense, and that slime mold can actually solve puzzles and move from A to B, getting around barriers, again, without a brain at all. And when you think about what the future of our cities are going to need to look like to be more eco-friendly, uh, more efficient transport systems, those types of things, it's so it's so incredible all of the prismatic brilliance that's all around us and how often that we we hierarchize intelligence. One of the things I talk a lot about in the book is that hierarchizing intelligence is so dangerous because for me, as a human rights lawyer, as someone who studied war crimes, crimes against humanity, atrocity, abuse, and violations, is that it all starts with dehumanization. And we see that we do that, we see, of course, across the animal kingdom, but even just amongst humans, as opposed to tapping into the incredible ways that, for example, the innate GPS systems that animals have able to find their way, those types of things you can, I mean, that's not, it's not even a stretch to even understand how that could be powerful, right, uh, in terms of tools to tap into. And uh, the ways also that, you know, perhaps screens, though there have been a lot of benefits, of course, uh, have moved us away from being in touch uh, with each other. We see in a, you know, in a post-COVID world, in a, in a world where it's become, we've become more atomized and more isolated. Hmm. Whereas, you know, we're also talking about the idea that, you know, pigeons can detect cancer in image scans. I mean, yes. I mean, crows, take a look at some of the things that crows can do solving puzzles. I, in fact, just saw a study uh, that they're, you know, using the intelligence of these incredible creatures that we share a home with to solve um, a whole host of problems. And so thinking about that, that intelligence is there, but it's often denigrated Mm -hmm. and that we focus on such a homogenous, narrow set, even of skills, there's analogies, you know, in terms of the education space of the incredible work being done across engineering and the maths and the sciences. And we're starting to see a little bit of interdisciplinary work like ethical training, but we also have to be talking across those, those silos, social scientists, you know, we need to be talking to ethicists, of course, people in the social justice space, because we're starting to see that no one of us has all the answers is like one of the key tenants of, of my work and my, you know, my, my value system, but together there's no star we can't dream of exploring. I think a lot about the James Webb telescope that literally is being, is launched after many, many years of work and is going to be able to see back in time, perhaps the beginning of the universe. And that was no one person's miraculous achievement. They all, all the scientists work together across time and space to figure this out. Uh, when we talk about, you know, something like the, the answer, the bees, they were really working so much in tandem. Their entire life system involves working as a team. Uh, when you talk about, right, well, we talked about the octopus tentacles that the scientists at Raytheon think that that octopus intelligence is much better suited to the robotics they're building to explore distant planets because that multifaceted uh, distributed intelligence is not only critical, it's something the human brain cannot do. And so I think that there's all these different examples of the ways that schools of fish learn and move, flocks of birds. Uh, we have so much to learn if we can understand not just how it works, but what that can teach us about treating each other better. And that, again, expands our horizons, not just in the ethical and rights framework, but that's how we solve problems. Because if you look at across time and space to the incredible achievements, so often the collaboration why, while it might be more behind the curtain because humans love to hear stories of the one miraculous person put on a pedestal, so much of that is collaboration. The, you know, the discovery of the DNA helix, for example, 
and who gets credit versus the work that it took to get there. Uh, you know, leaving the Petri dish, you know, going on vacation out of the office and discovering penicillin. You know, a lot of that is not just the actual work you learn in the classroom, but learning how to expand your mind, you know, Sherlock Holmes, of course, the fictional example of, you know, wandering around and finding the answer. But when you look at an Einstein or a Da Vinci or an Ada Lovelace, a lot of that was interdisciplinary work that required, of course, some type of traditional study, but also looking at nature all around combining mathematics and science. So I could go on and on, but one of the things I discuss in the book that I think is incredibly important in the intelligence, education, and learning space is what's called combinatorial creativity. Taking a bunch of different things from different aspects of life and putting them together to create something new. And how's that different? So just to explain that a little bit, how is that different from creativity or problem solving now where we take different, we bring together different pieces of information to solve a problem? It's not different. It's just to, to highlight that the combinatorial aspect mm -hmm. of creativity is incredibly important. So mm -hmm. none of this is, you know, outside of the realm of what, again, people have studied and done throughout space and time. It's really more that normally, just as one of many examples, you get the famous story of the artist that worked in isolation to become the lone genius, often a man. Uh, and often is used, used euphemistically for most times. Mm -hmm. And whereas in fact, there was a host of influences from different art forms to the people all around that person that were inspiring that person. So combinatorial is just a way to highlight that it's not just about necessarily the paintbrush on the page. There's the life experience. There's the people involved. There's how this person was able to do this work, where they, you know, what they were drawing on. I mean, Leonardo da Vinci you know, I, I uh, talk a lot about da Vinci in the book for multiple, multiple reasons, but, you know, one of the classic things I've read all of his work and gone through his journals, and there's an incredible wealth of information there, but first of all, worked in collaboration with a lot of people you don't hear about. Also, of course, we call him, you know, perhaps the greatest Western painter of all time, but when you read his work and his words, he fancied himself a military engineer. He fancied <laughs> yes. himself a whole host of other things. He studied water eddies. He studied anatomy. Uh, he had all different types of ideas. It's only now that again we like to corral this type of creativity into one specific way. But if you know, if you look at the work that he did himself, he called himself any number of things and was pitching projects. You know, some of which we've seen flying devices, but also the, you know a lot of military. Uh, innovations. And so the, the, the point is to say Ada Lovelace, for example, who is now finally being credited for being the first computer programmer, she wove poetry into the mathematics of what Babbage was writing. And in the margins of someone else's work is where she discovered the magic. Yes. So it's just to say that it really is no one thing. And I also think just per your question, especially talking about education and learning, is that creativity is a learned skill. I think another way we silo is to say, oh, this is a creative person. This is a not creative person. And that's just not how creativity and empathy works. These are muscles we need to practice. We can exactly. all learn to be creative. And we're, we're all born creative with that sense of adventure. It's just societal systems and constructs that tend to silo us for a lot of different reasons. It's mm -hmm. no one person's fault, but mm. whether it's, you know, educational systems built a certain way, you know, figuring out how to get a job to work in a capitalist economy, but the combinatorial creativity has a lot to do with taking nuggets from here and there and gems of wisdom. And for that, we need to talk to different types of people and we need to learn different types of things. And most critically, we need to be curious about the world around us and to step outside the limits of our own selves and say, what else is out there? It's, you know, there's a lot of power in saying, I don't know. Yes, that is absolutely true. And as you said, creativity is all around us. I mean, solving small everyday problems requires creativity to do it well, to make life easier, but also the most creative individuals are those that really absorb information from all around them and, and seek out information, which is extremely important. And do you think in, in understanding what all these different types of intelligences, are we doing enough? I mean, there's been a lot of work lately in promoting neurodiversity in promoting different ways of learning. And sometimes these things get siloed a little bit too much. But do you think we're doing enough to understand and appreciate the different types of intelligences and also the intelligences that animals have that we don't have? I mean, in a word, and obviously my work speaks to this, you know, no, yes. we're not doing enough. 
course, you know, the, the not so secret agenda of the, the plot twist of the, my books and, and that type of, you know, all of my writing really has to do with this idea of celebrating the world all around us and really that it holds so many of the keys to unlock so many of the issues we have, whether it's climate, pandemics, uh, democratic decline, polarization. I think that the short answer is, of course, no. And I think that balancing the progress that has been made and celebrating that versus constantly pushing for more it is incredibly important. And in some ways, there has, of course, been some progress. But in other ways, you know, just as one example, when we're talking about learning and education, we're at a real reckoning in terms of education. And that is colliding with not just, you know, some institutions are rather bloated in terms of being run like companies, whereas others are completely underfunded. Now in this, you know, COVID world, we're talking about at the very least a hybrid learning environment going forward, whether we like it or not, right? Mm -hmm. so of course be, I'm sure, of great interest to many of the people listening in and the ways that we learn on Zoom. And Zoom is the beginning, you know, you know, because it was not predicted that we would be moving this as we will have more tools in the future that are already working on more interactive tools and ways to think about this. But whether we like it or we hate it, the digital learning future is here and it's growing fast. And so not only are we not celebrating all of those different types of intelligences and and not being curious enough about what that means, I think that we really need to understand tapping into our creativity and brilliance and what it's going to take to build those futures we're going to thrive in because the world is going to look a lot different. Climate change is here. Weather is going to be changing. Pandemics are here. This is not going to be the last one. So we're talking about thinking about the future of cities, educational institutions, how we learn. I'm also deeply concerned, in addition to a lot of the discrimination against certain types of learning styles or intelligence, I'm deeply concerned about inequities in the digital learning space and who's mm -hmm. going to have access to institutions and to those types of education. And we're already seeing, talking to teacher friends, I'm sure you are too, across the world as to, you know, as much as we as much as it is attempted to create a space where you can be in person or online, that wall is there. If there's some people in the room and some people aren't having access to an appropriate internet connection and also just certain things, whether you love or hate the internet or technology, that's how a lot of banking is getting done now. That these are things that people need to access for their jobs, whether we like it or not. And then we have, of course, people that can't do their jobs online. And so I think that we have so much to do, not just in celebrating it on an ethical, you know, kind of standard, but also this is how we're going to solve the problems of the future. And there is a lot of work being done. There's a lot of hope to be had. But, you know, like, like a lot of parts of society, we tend to celebrate and uphold and put on a pedestal certain demographics and certain types of thinking and being, whereas others get relegated and it's a it's a huge mistake and I think that my hope and my work in writing is that we don't exactly know what's coming but we can learn to treat each other better in the process because like it or not we are all we've got on this ball floating in the darkness in the vast cosmos and I think our future is going to have to look you know a lot more like that when I think about one example of this happened recently I saw in Minnesota there was a real weight on the electrical grids due to weather. And so in Duluth, I believe it was, a call went out to say, can everyone please lower their thermostat to whatever it was, 60 degrees, so we can make sure we don't overload these circuits uh, so that some people don't lose power. And it was a really interesting example because people did it, sure enough. And the grid, you know, was able to manage through this. And there was, you know, this idea that basically... This was not something that was legally required. You'd never know who did it, who didn't. You never knew who's going to benefit. Uh, but everyone did this thing. And I think, you know, we see that with pandemics, which is which is why we're going to have to figure out how we all band together in these more informal ways where there aren't necessarily legal norms. But in our future, it's going to have to look a lot more like that, these slight inconveniences so that we can all be included in this crucible of humanity. And so I think that learning to value each other more is going to be essential. And, you know, education is just where it all begins. Mm -hmm, absolutely. Right. So I, I think we need to be thinking about that, not just in the formal educational learning structures, but what it means to learn and to be a student of this world and to figure yes. out how to make this happen, regardless of what's coming.
Mm, absolutely. And the interconnected nature and the fast moving changes that are happening in the world with the changing technology being very interconnected, you have to be very nimble, but really appreciating those different ways that people learn. And you were talking about hierarchy and one of the hierarchies in, in learning certainly has been the STEM subjects, which in recent times, the science, technology, engineering, and math has been put at the top of the pedestal. And really, in order to be able to do technology such as AI well, you really have to bring together philosophers, ethicists, uh, a lot of different types of skills and, and knowledge that doesn't have the pyramid of the programmer at the top. And that's extremely important to value. I mean, coming away from this research, is there something you came away thinking, I wish we could do, of course, on an individual basis, we should all be more aware and open-minded and appreciate different ways people work and learn. But is there something you came away with thinking that if we did this as a society in schools or in, in the education system, this would help to really appreciate the different types of ways we learn and different intelligences that can come together? Yes. I mean, of course, as you know, I talk a lot about this in the book and you're really tapping into, I think, another critical piece of this hierarchizing discussion that we're having about what gets prioritized in the educational space, you know, and you see this across business schools and law schools, yes. undergraduate, elementary, that, you know, we've got to prepare people for uh, this type of job market, or this is what's going to be great for our brochure for bringing people in. And these are all realities. It's not, again, to blame anyone uh, institution or individual. But, you know, for me, I think about siloing, you know, this, this STEM fields outside of the humanities or outside of thinking about ethics, you know, or going through a law or an engineering program without these interconnective tissues. You see it, you know, all across the board. But, you know, I remember thinking, why isn't public speaking taught in law schools? We've got to be talking about these, you know, ethical issues in engineering. And also that, you know, teams have to have a, a multitude of different types of people, as you were kind of hinting at as well. And so there's a lot that we could say. And uh, I, I, of course, talk a lot about it in the book. And I know it's something you and your audience thinks about all the time. But, you know, for me, and there's other people that have said this in different ways across space and time, but what I really write about is what it means to be human and what it means to be humane. And so we can talk about what's gonna be the job market that's gonna be the hottest and we can talk about what it's gonna mean, but I, you know, it's not about we should all become programmers. Mm -hmm. uh, it's that there are things that we do to keep our society moving forward and the innovation and the creativity that goes into those things is incredibly important. But something like the humanities poetry art you know that's what speaks to our soul you know if you read books like uh some of my favorites never let me go uh station 11 mm -hmm. highly recommend i could go on and on this could be <laughs> the rabbit hole of like becomes a book club but that's that's what helps us think about who we are. You mentioned philosophy, which is of course something that's talked about, but intertwining these existential questions, these challenging questions with the practical tools that we're gonna need. I mean, engineers, we can't build anything without engineers, but you know, the other thing is that to go to the stars takes the most incredible mix of scientific and technical passion, but you also have to dream of going to the stars. And, not, and it's not even just a philosophical poetic question, it's you have to pitch your idea and get funding to go to the stars. So you have to get other people on board with understanding that. Same with cleaning the oceans. This is why storytelling is at the heart of what it means to be human. It's how we get people on board uh, with everything. And so we really have to tap into kind of our deepest wants and desires. And so the humanities, you know, Oliver Sacks, uh, all of his books I recommend, but the power of music, mm. not just to tap into our souls, but to heal us and to bring us together. And so I think that all of those things have to work in tandem. And one of the cool things about technology could be freeing up some of our precious time for more adventures, for more dreaming, for more creative pursuits in more ways. There's so many things that are, you know, in art and a science when you think about it. And so I think that that all has to work in tandem. And, you know, we've seen so many things in the educational space, like the, the loss of classics departments, for yes. example. And it's not a binary, you know, black and white situation. There's a lot of problems with, quote unquote, what the canon is and what should be in it. You know, I am part of a team that's constantly looking 
uh, and advising on you know diversifying and making more inclusive certain syllabi. This is something that I'm you know is people have been working on for a very long time. And so I think that those are the types of things we need to be we need to be thinking about, not even just across, of course, arts and humanities, but who's getting cited? A big, huge, important part of my book is making sure, you know, the citations and the celebrations were much more radically inclusive because a lot of these steps, there are brilliant people across the world doing the work, but who gets cited? Who gets to be in the room? And those are the types of questions we need to be thinking about as well, because I, there's, there's so many things we can't solve and there's so many things we can predict, but there are things that we can do. We can have more lived experiences in the room. We can talk about not just diversity, but equity and justice and bringing that lens to what we do because you know it keeps me up at night wondering about someone that might be helping us solve our greatest problem or just living a joyous life, but don't have access. It's all about access and opportunity and education is where that, that begins. And it's different. It's not just one, it's not just being in the classroom. It's having the tools to succeed in a child's own way so that they can thrive and not shutting them down before they've had a chance to be who they can be. Yes, that's very, very true. I very much am a big believer that inside of every child, there's an inclination and you need to feed that and let it blossom and expose a child to a lot of different types of knowledge and different types of experiences to do that. But talking about interdisciplinarity and the extreme importance of it in our in our world today, and especially in AI, in order to have that interdisciplinary, often, you know, the idea of, well, let's teach everyone to code and let's teach every engineer a little bit of ethics. And I myself, uh, doing my engineering undergrad, uh, had an ethics class, but that's simply not, I mean, I, I cannot come away from that being an ethicist, you know, it's hardly a taste. You really need to bring together experts who are ethicists in their own discipline, and that's what their profession is. But to have these teams, these interdisciplinary teams, is a whole other way of really working and something I think that we're we're getting, well, it's something that's happening, but maybe not as much as it should be. You spoke about in your book also about biologically inspired engineering and robotics, which I thought was a really interesting biologically inspired engineering. And they study how birds come together and, you know, schools of fish, how they work as a team in different ways than humans do. So in terms of teamwork, what would be different about it from the way that we think about teamwork or interdisciplinary teams right now? What should we be changing about the way we think about teamwork now? Yeah, a lot of great issues to unpack there. So I think uh, the, what you're referencing from my book, as I mentioned, Dr. Radhika Dirks, who's one of many people uh, doing this type of work. And as an athlete myself, uh, I've learned so much of what it means to be human from, from teamwork and from that type of work. And of course, from the natural worlds all around us. And it's very complex because, and that's why I say, you know, it's, it's not enough to put a bunch of people in a room. There have people have to feel safe that they, their ideas are heard. You can't, you know, that all of the studies of course show multiple things about across gender, you know, there, there can be tokenization. There has, there's so many ways, you know, you can't just slap a bandaid on something. There needs to be spaces where people feel like they have autonomy and they have the ability to make decisions and they're safe to fail. And, you know, there's so many examples of, you know, we have people, a long way to go in terms of developing really go. good interdisciplinary teams. Yeah. One of the, Definitely. one of the best definitions I heard of a privilege was those who are allowed to make mistakes. And so mm-hmm. we have this whole idea of, right. So that it's not enough just, just to talk about that kind of in the abstract. Uh, it's, it's a very complex interplay. Yes. And I think that so much of, of why that's important is because, and again, this is, you know, at the core of all of this is we're, we have to remember that we are beasts. We are animals. Our brains are limited. And to me, talking about that is very freeing because we, this is the, this is what, this is the hardware we're working with. Yes. Remember our limitations is actually, in my opinion, how we discover the stars, because it reminds us that, you know, this is, this is what our brain is doing because it thinks it needs to survive. And it also has to do with storytelling because data points of a million malnourished people do not connect like the story of one, which is why we have, you know, the Hollywood notion of, you know, one person that, that saves everything. Mm. That's how our brains take in information. It just also for multitude of reasons can be incredibly 
dangerous. And mm-hmm. I, I may have mentioned this before, but there's a podcast I was listening to that suggests that, you know, there's the Nobel Prize, but really need to have the Globel Prize to celebrate these developments because every single instance is many, many people that came together to make something happen. And so, you know, storytelling is in our bones. It's not, we can't blame any one gene or any one person on why we are the way we are, but the teamwork is important because for a bunch of reasons, first of all, all of the, the major threats that we are facing coming up do not adhere to borders, do not adhere to you know, climate, pandemics, terrorism, or we're talking about CRISPR, biotechnology. We are going to need to be thinking a lot bigger and a lot broader uh, and a lot more globally. And we have to be celebrating more of the ideas coming out of the global south. And we have to be thinking across just what generally gets funding or the richest nations. So that type of thing is incredibly important because I'm talking about teamwork on local and global scales. Right. Uh, I also think that those types of principles are very useful in education. Just in one example, I wrote my wrote a dissertation on this idea of, of moving more into a collaborative uh, and systems thinking mindset across education. So just one of many examples in the medical model, there is a teamwork aspect to nurse practitioners and PAs and doctors and nurses all having a role in working together. Whereas oftentimes, for example, in the legal space, you know, we, you have, it's a very specific training regimen to become a lawyer. So as a result, there's so many silos in that field. And there's some incredible groups, for example, working to train paralegals to work in places where no one would ever have access to a lawyer. And so my opinion is that we need to have that across different types of educational institutions where we're being trained to work together because we all have strengths and weaknesses. So the other thing I want to mention too about what you said is in addition to that dynamic and well thought out teamwork, uh, one of the things you said is, you know, but we have to have experts. It's not enough to take a workshop and say you're an expert. And we're we're having so many problems with that. Uh, But we're in a real reckoning with this idea of expert versus, you know, armchair Twitter expert versus trying to move past these elite silos. So no one answer is gonna tackle all of this because you're seeing this, of course, across the pandemic. Mm. People with no training in epidemiology chiming in, misinformation, disinformation spreading like wildfires, same with conspiracy theories. So this is a big question, I think, of our times. How are we trusting the experts uh, and rebuilding trust? So much of this has to do with a loss of trust in institutions, but also making room for new types of thinking and making sure that we are also, uh, like you said, not just, yeah, I took a workshop, so I'm the newest expert. Mm, we need to really work together more than ever and and learn how to work well together. And it's interesting you said about the uh, group working together as a group in the medical profession, because when medical mistakes are made, one of the biggest problems is that the group doesn't work well. And it's often, uh, it's often linked to the fact that there's a hierarchy where people don't appreciate each other's expertise, and that's when mistakes are made, which is absolutely terrible. So that's a, that's a very, very important um, point that you, you brought up about teamwork. If someone now, of course, there's so many issues to discuss, but for someone who's going into their work and they're working on a project and they think, oh my gosh, yes, maybe we should be thinking about teamwork differently. What would be one thing that you hope they would implement? One thing I would hope they would implement. The first thing that came to my mind that is, I guess, a precursor to that, because there are there are things that we can implement. But, you know, as we discussed around longer term thinking expertise, that so much of this is a mindset. Yes. That there is no one thing that can work across fields, across problems. I think so there's so much power in an educational mindset that has to do with critical thinking, create combinatorial creativity and problem solving, especially when we're talking about a world filled with disinformation and misinformation, which is technically nothing new, but the scale of the online digital space has made this uh, spread like wildfire. So that critical thinking lens, that intersectional lens is so important. And, and like, you know, I, I'm, I'm very much in the business, unfortunately, of not giving easy answers to 
anything really more, just more questions, but to have that questioning lens, um, as Rilke calls it, to live the questions, as you know, from my book, it's something I think about a lot and to have that mindset, to have that, not just that openness, but that willingness to say, I don't know, and to maybe turn to someone who does Mm -hmm. and to move away from the reactionary thinking. You see this, there's a million examples we could give, but there's an obsession with the knee jerk reaction. And again, not to just blame our small human brains. That's how the algorithms are trained on something like Twitter. These tools are built within a business capitalist system that is designed to make money off your clicks. Nuance, complex, back and forth, do not get the clicks that extremist, sensationalist, clickbait does. It's not just our fault. And the whole big myth of individual solutions, and of course we want to better ourselves and have self-care and wellness is essential, but we have to remember these are systematic things that are being done by the richest and most powerful among us to make money off of us. Mm. And so to not take all of the blame on, you know, we can't fix climate as individuals. And so I think that critical thinking lens, that ability to say, I don't know, you know, one of the biggest red flags I always say is is one of many people who studies authoritarian regimes is there are so many patterns, you know, the, the mindset of, well, only I can fix it. I need to be in charge. And you see that across big tech, you see that across government, red flag. And again, these are not secrets. This has been well-studied and well-documented. So that mindset, you know, the most powerful thing you can bring to any team is awareness that you are part of a team exactly, and that there's so much to be learned and there's brilliance all around us. But the other reason that mindset is critical, because one of the dangerous things that I see, and that I'm certainly not the only one, you know, studying foresight and prediction, doing some writing about that right now, is that when we get locked in too early, we miss all the potential possible futures that could have been better when we get too locked in. And that happens for a myriad of reasons. First of all, as you hinted at, the human brain has to make, the adult human brain has to make something like 35,000 decisions every day. We couldn't walk down a block without ruling things out, making assumptions, associations in our mind. It's how the brain works. We wouldn't be able to function without it. At the same time, we get locked in for so many reasons. The expertise thing is challenging because some of the most dogmatic are those that are experts in their field because they're really invested in being right. Talk about Mm. this book. When you're so invested in being right, it's harder because it's really hard to change your mind, right? But at the same time, there's a lot of knowledge and expertise there. This is why it's very nuanced. So when you're dogmatic and focused on being right, You can move away, you know, the ego comes in and you move away from the better answer. There's a lot of power in being willing to change your mind. We are seeing this play out across politics, news, uh, pseudo news, social media, this obsession with being right and with binary systems of I'm right and you're wrong, as opposed to meeting meeting more uh, in the middle in in, in terms of coming up with solutions before an obsession with being right. So that's the type of mindset. And unfortunately, you can't just pick it up and bring it to a room. These things are hard and they take humility and practice and letting go of ego and, you know, sharing credit and not just bringing, you know, someone that, you know, into the room, but pulling out a chair for someone who's isn't represented. Mm. And that, that is at serious odds with our instinct to focus on in-group bias from our natural desire, you know, to be around things and people that are familiar. So I always say it's a practice. So what you can bring is your lifelong practice of working on that critical lens and working hard every single day to do a little bit better while we embrace our imperfections. And I think that's a powerful, very difficult thing to do. And so I guess my short-term stopgap answer is while we're reimagining ourselves and our society and trying to evolve as human beings, which may or may not be possible, you know, we got to have the regulations, those ethical guidelines to help guide us towards the best of who we could be. True. I loved what you said that even though individually we can make some changes, absolutely, but we also need to work in a system and we are functioning in a system for example, at work, putting the right systems in place so that you don't jump to a solution. You do bring in different voices, thinking about, for example, the teams that are responsible for doing digital transformation in an organization. 
bring in the voices who are completely opposed to a digital transformation, have those people on the team and hear what they're saying, I think is such an important step in being able to be inclusive and, and see problems from a lot of very different perspectives. Anyways, there's so much that we could be discussing. I mean, you said that this book is a cautious statement of hope, and you are very hopeful as well, even though you outline a lot of very important and uh, critical things that we should be careful about. But what is something that you hope people walk away with? Indeed. It is one of the things I like to say about hope is that I think it's a real rebellion in these times. And to to know that the future is uncertain and it is terrifying in so many ways and complex and layered, but that we can go down swinging no matter what, that we can, that we can find, find that rebellion of hope and joy amidst everything else that's swirling around us. And so, you know, what, what I, what I hope people walk away with is of course a sense of adventure and that you know they went on they went on a real ride and and learned a thing or two but that it brought out some 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 spark within themselves that inside we have a lot of what we need to move forward and that individually we can and are we can feel so small and indeed in the vast cosmos all around us we are so small, but at the same time, we are all literally made of the same star stuff. And individually, it is, it is hard to be human. But together, there is no star we can't dream of exploring if we work together. And that we all have a part and a voice in that. And we are all part of this tapestry of humanity. We are all interconnected in those ways. And to feel a part of that and to make others feel a part of that you know, and to learn to care for each other and treat each other better because we are all threads of that same tapestry. And that, that's that, that feeling. It can be really hard to feel because of the cacophony of noise and social media and maybe a focus on individualism and ambition and productivity. And there's so many things that can make us feel a part of that. But to, to, to find that sense of aliveness, however you can, and to go towards it. Uh, I think is is our is our lifetime of work, and that it is difficult. It is indeed difficult, but you know we're also wired to solve those problems if we work together. And there is hope in that. Mm, that's absolutely fantastic, and that is a wonderful message to come away with and and to think about. I really really appreciate you sharing your insights and what you've learned along the way writing this beautiful book, A Human Algorithm. It's a great title and it's a phenomenal, phenomenal book. It touches on the technology to help understand the technology better, but much more importantly, it touches on all the major issues around not just AI, but what we really need to think about as our future in humanity. And I really, really appreciate that. It was very interesting. So thank you so much, Flynn, for being on the podcast and speaking more about intelligence and AI. Thank you so much for having me. And as you said, all we can do is keep learning, keep moving forward. So it was an honor to be here. Thank you. Thank you.